Welcome to Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. Your hosts are Becky Olson and Sharon Hennepin. Our show is here to help breast cancer patients, survivors, their friends and family with the resources, support, and inspiration they can use right now. Here are your hosts, Sharon and Becky. Welcome to Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. My name is Becky Olson. I'm a three-time, 20-year breast cancer survivor. I'm also a professional speaker and the published author of The Hat That Saved My Life. And hi, I'm Sharon Hennepin. I'm a 23-year survivor. I'm also a certified life coach and the author of my upcoming book, Thriving Beyond Cancer. We're both the the co-founders of Breast Friends, and today we decided to get back to basics. Our guest today is Dr. Suzanne Elid. She's a breast surgeon at the Comprehensive Cancer Centers of Nevada, and she's located in Las Vegas. Today, we're going to discuss breast cancer basics. We just kind of decided to get back to that. We've gone a lot of different directions on our show, but you know, there's a lot of new people who are newly diagnosed, and we would just love to be able to answer any questions you might have. So today, we're going to talk about breast cancer screening, diagnosis, and treatment. Welcome, Dr. Alid. Thanks for joining us Good today. Good morning. Good morning, so what, and thank you for having me on the show. Oh, Absolutely. you're so welcome. Our pleasure. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do there in Las Vegas and introduce yourself to our audience so they can get to know you a little bit. So I am a breast surgical oncologist. Um, my job is to evaluate women with abnormal mammograms and lumps and bumps and complaints about breast complaints. If there is a cancer, diagnose it, um, do the surgery, coordinate their care with the medical oncologist, radiation oncologist, um, and take care of them as high-risk patients. Well, I'll tell you, you have a really... You have a very important role because I think we all remember very well that first contact we had with our doctor when we were first diagnosed. So it's a really important thing that you're doing, and um, we I'm sure you have many patients who <laughs> really, really admire you. So Thank let's you. talk a little bit about screening, you know, let, kind of going back to the very, very beginning of this. Um, when you talk about screening, you know, in addition to annual mammograms, and you know, there's a lot of, of dispute about when that should start. Um, in fact, let me ask you that. When do you think women should start getting screening mammograms? There's a lot of controversy around that right now. Right. Every couple of years, this comes back in the news. Um, they reanalyze the same data, really, and <laughs> issue new guidelines. Yeah, but recently, they do. the American Cancer Society changed their guidelines and stated that the screening mammography should start at age 45 unless mm-hmm. the woman is higher risk and she should discuss it with her physician. I personally still start all my patients uh, screening mammography at age 40. Mm-hmm. Thank you. <laughs> we, yeah. we are, we're so happy to hear that because we know so many women who have been diagnosed. At, Sharon was diagnosed at 40. I was diagnosed at 43. Yeah. And yep. if in the, they were both screening mammograms. And if we mm-hmm. hadn't done that, waited till 45 or 50, we might not even be here. So Yeah, I wouldn't have been for sure. You know, no yeah. question about it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so okay. So, thank you for clarifying that because we we agree with you. So, okay. So, in addition to annual mammograms and regular self exam, how can people stay proactive against breast cancer? What can they do? And and so, of course, 
And part of that physical is the breast exam by a clinician. Mm-hmm. We encourage patients for a self-breast awareness, which means examine their cells, get to know their own breasts, and they know if there's a change. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's really important because I know when I found my second lump, I found it myself in the shower. And I'd had my mammogram in August of 2003, and it was clean. And this was like, you know, seven, whatever, eight years after my first diagnosis. And then I was in the shower 10 months later after that clean mammogram, and I found a, another tumor on the other side. It was stage three. It was pretty advanced, growing quickly, and they gave me a 53% chance to live past five years. And I'm happy to tell you that was a long time ago. <laughs> but, yeah, um, here goodness. you are. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. But the breast, the, uh, breast self-exam is one thing, and so you're, you're encouraging the clinical exam as well. And so why do you think that's so much more important? Because I think a lot of people leave that step out. So why do you, why do you put that so high up on the list? Um, you know, nothing is perfect. Mammogram in dense breast tissue can still miss things. Yeah, Notoriously, there's some type of breast cancer, certain types, they don't really show up on the mammogram. Example is the invasive lobular type carcinoma. It's notoriously, it doesn't show clearly on the mammogram. And so we want all the help we can get. Okay. Exam plus mammogram. And if the woman is high risk with genetics or whatever, then add the MRI if she meets the guidelines and criteria for screening with MRI. Yeah, that and makes sense. A, and if she feels a lump and the mammogram is negative, we shouldn't ignore that lump. We should do the exam, see if there's truly a lump, look with the ultrasound, evaluate the area of concern for the patient. Yeah, I, I have kind of a philosophy, and that is if I find a lump in my breast and they've looked at it, and or anywhere actually, in my back or my neck or wherever, because I've had them removed, um, and they say, well, it doesn't look like anything, let's watch it. And I, my response is, let's watch it in a Petri dish, thank you very yeah. much. And I always have them removed because I don't want some weird lump growing inside of me because, you know, they change over time and, and you might not even notice it. That's well, kind of what happened my first time. Sharon, do you remember me sharing that story oh yeah. with you? Oh, oh, for sure. I mean, just yeah. the fact. And, and the funny thing is, we want to hear from our doctors that it's nothing. Oh, it's yeah. nothing, right? That's what yeah. we want to hear. But, you know, there's there's this little voice sometimes we need to listen to in ourselves. And, we, you know, even if you hear that and you really don't believe that, then go get a second opinion, too. Yeah. And don't shop around exactly. until you hear the answer you want either. No, no. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. I, actually, when I teach students, I tell them patients know their bodies. And, you know, yeah. when they're complaining about something, listen to them. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Well, you know, my very first lump, I found, I found my own very first lump when I was in my mid-30s. And it really scared me because, I mean, you're not supposed to have lumps in your breast. And this one was very abnormal for me. And I went to have a mammogram and the doctor, they did the mammogram and the doctor told me, he said, well, it, it's just fibrous tissue. Don't worry about it. And you know how we are. We hear what we want to hear. And what I heard was don't ever worry about it, <laughs> which yeah. was totally wrong. And so seven years later, I was in for a doctor appointment and she did a, 
a breast exam on me, a clinical breast exam, and she asked me, when was my last mammogram? And I said, seven years ago. And she said, well, we're going to get you in for another one. And she wouldn't let me leave till she booked it. And thank God, because um, this was a nurse practitioner. I love her. And she, they found that I had a stage three tumor the first time out. And, um, and what had happened is that fibrous tissue had grown quite large. And in the center of it, a tumor had developed. But because mm-hmm. I knew it was fibrous tissue, I ignored that lump as it was growing. And that's why I say I'd rather watch it in a Petri dish. So, you know, because you don't notice that slow growth and that slow change over time. And I knew that lump was there, but I wasn't worried about it. It was just fibrous tissue. Right, right. <laughs> so, how, so again, how old were you? I was thirty. Well, I was thirty-seven when I found that first when I had the first lump analyzed, and then it was seven years later. So I was forty-three when um, I guess maybe it was thirty-six the first time. Anyway, I was forty-three when we when we discovered that it was actually a tumor inside that lump. So, yeah. um, you know, and it was quite large and. You know, stage three, even that early on. So, um, yeah, we just we don't uh, want to ignore those things. Unfortunately, when we're young, the mammogram is very dense and it will miss it. You know. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So because speaking the, of dense, dense breasts, I mean, obviously, that's when we really need to pay attention to our own body and that self breast exams, even if you don't do it like every month, like they've talked about for years, you know, just knowing your own body, I think is important. So when you do feel something odd, different than what is normal, you can at least have it checked out. Of course, of course. And remember that we consider now dense breast tissue as one of the relative risk factors for breast cancer, simply because we can't tell. It doesn't show up. The cancer gets masked in that Yeah, it's my understanding that the tumor shows up white and dense breasts show up white, so it's really hard to hard to see them. Is that correct? Yeah, correct. Yeah, and so uh, so in certain states now, it's uh, required by law that when the radiologist reports the mammogram, they have to inform the patient about their tissue density. Is there a way for to know that you have dense breasts with you know just? It's not the size, it's not the the thickness of the breast, right? How do you know? How does a person, a woman know that she has dense breast and it's it might be more report, difficult? In her mammogram report, it states. Okay. okay. So it's not so something she can know. know ahead of time. It's just something that they can see on the mammogram. Well, well, I think right? the, the, pr- the pr- we know it by exam, you know, we know it by exam. When we're okay. young, we all have dense breast tissue. When we get older... And the breast right. tissue gets replaced by fat, then it's not as dense. Right. Okay. Right. So that okay. makes sense. So, so let's talk about the importance of early detection in fighting breast cancer. I know it, we always hear about early, you know, early detection. You get a better outcome. What talk talk to us about that for a moment? Well, of course, early detection saves lives. You know, the earlier it is, the more curable it is. Mm-hmm. Okay. Breast cancer is curable. When it's stage four, however, we can't just take it out. So we live with it. Yeah. And that's what that's what happens. Yeah. And so that's yes. why early detection is important. And also early detection, if you are going to uh, develop breast cancer, the earlier you find it, the less invasive the treatment. 
so that that in itself is is really important as well. So if if you are diagnosed early stages, then of course having a lumpectomy so you can actually preserve the breast tissue in many cases, um, uh, and and maybe have some radiation that sort of thing, so you don't have to do as much generally speaking, right? So the advancement we've had in technology such as the mammogram, we moved from the analog to the digital now to the tomosynthesis, which we call 3D mammogram. It shows us more in the breast. It's able to detect a spot of a breast cancer at earlier stages. Yes, that's wonderful. Yep, absolutely. So... Um, tell us about some of the other warning signs that a person may have developed breast cancer besides just a lump. So, you know, we encourage women to get familiar with their breast, the skin color, the nipple shape, form, um, any nipple discharge, um, of course, any lumps, um, skin redness, um, most commonly, breast cancer starts as a lump on physical exam. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, nipple discharge is kind of a tricky one because we, when nipple discharge is happening with manipulation of the breast, that's normal. When it comes out on its own without touching the breast, when the woman says, I see a spot on my bra or on my pajamas without me touching my breast, then that's abnormal, and we call that spontaneous discharge, and that triggers a flag. Mm-hmm. And then I also understand if, you know, and I, I know I had this experience with my particular breast cancer, if you're standing in front of a mirror and you put your arms up over your head and look at your breasts and see if they pull up together and they're even, or is one of them kind of lagging behind and puckering a little bit, that's, that's a sign of potential cancer. Is that, is that correct? And it changes. You want to okay. get to know the breast, and if there's any change, you think that area is changing in the breast, then there's something going on. Okay. Yeah. And, and it's, worth, it's, it's worth getting checked. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Being able to get it checked right away is important, definitely. Yes, it is. So, Sharon, you had some questions about what are the difference in, in some different types of cancer diagnosis. You want to take those, those questions? So, so for instance, when you are when you when you do hear those dreaded words that you do have cancer, then you're then you uh, I know as a patient you end up learning a whole new language, um, and part of those things are differentiating between the stages and the grades of the cancer, things like that. Why don't you just kind of give us a, a quick rundown of the different stages, as well as the grades of cancer um, when it's found in the breast. So grade is a subjective thing. Grade is what the pathologist is looking under the microscope. So when the pathologist looks at the cancer cells on the slides under microscope, they look at how fast these cells are growing, right? And so they can be fast growing, and that's a grade three, or they can be slow growing, and that's a grade one. And grade two is in between. Mm -hmm. So the good type of cancer is the one that's slow growing and it's a grade one. The aggressive type of breast cancer is the one that's a grade three. 
Mm-hmm. Mind you, sometimes there is difference in opinion. One pathologist may call it a grade two, one pathologist may call it a grade one. So that's oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so okay. phase is how far has it gone in the body? Mm-hmm. So if it's small in the breast, if it hasn't invaded through the cells, it's a stage zero. If mm-hmm. it invaded through the basement membrane of the cell, but still it's small and it's still in the breast, it's a stage one. If it's gone to the lymph node, that's a stage two. If it's in the bones or in the liver, that's a stage four. So mm-hmm. that's how we stage it. Is how far out from the breast is it? Okay. And how big? We take the size also into into consideration. So, so what's a stage three? Can you define a lymph node node involvement and sometimes skin involvement and sometimes chest wall involvement, but it's still in the chest area. It hasn't gone out of the breast and lymph node area. And when we say lymph node, we're talking about the armpit under the collarbone or uh, internal mammary, we call them, which is by the the sternum. Right, right. That's what you had, Becky, the last time. Yeah, my last time they called it consistent with metastatic disease because I'd had both of my breasts removed in 2004. And then in 2009, we found it behind my breastbone near my chest wall. And um, obviously it had spread there. So, um, but I am pleased to say, and I will say it for our listeners, um, I've had lots of radiation since and I have no evidence of disease at this point in my life. So yeah. I'm very happy about all That's that. Great. So, yeah. so listen, we're, we're going to actually go out to break and we have some more of this conversation to pick mm-hmm. up on the other side. So we ask you to just stay tuned, listen in, and we'll be back in just a few minutes. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. Thank you for listening today. Breast Friends needs your support. We rely on donations to keep our doors open and to keep this radio program alive. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation to Breast Friends. You can visit us at breastfriends.org. You can also like us on Facebook at Breast Friends of Oregon. Be sure to tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time for Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. Visit breastfriends.org and contribute today. When was the last time you felt free? It's time to uncover that feeling again with the compassion of a cross and shield and the power of a car that opens doors to the best hospitals and medical centers in all 50 states. Giving you the freedom to love, to dream, to dance like no one is watching. Regions Blue Cross Blue Shield. Live fearless. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. You are tuned into Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. To reach the program today, please call us at 1 866 472 5792. Again, that's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Becky at breastfriends.org. Now, back to the show. 
welcome back to our program. We've been talking about breast cancer basics with Dr. Suzanne Illig. And uh, doctor, we were talking about staging and grades of cancer. So I know not every cancer is the same. And um, I know there's some cancers like inflammatory cancer, inflammatory breast cancer, and even Paget's disease. That's, that's kind of one of those weird ones. Can you kind of explain those a little bit for us? And so inflammatory breast cancer is when it's involving the skin clinically. So we look at the breast and it looks red, uh, inflamed. It looks like an infection, actually. And Mm -hmm. so a lot of times it goes with delayed diagnosis a bit because people think it's an infection. Right. And so the rule of thumb is it's okay to give it antibiotics for a week or two. If it doesn't get better, you have to do a biopsy to make sure it's not the inflammatory type of breast cancer. So, yeah. Dr. Ali, does that, when the skin gets red like that, does it feel hot or, or really sensitive to the touch like a like an infection might feel? Is it, or it, can you actually infection feel Infection hurts. Infection hurts. Okay. But right. inflammatory breast cancer? Breast cancer doesn't really hurt. Okay. Right. So you're not and looking fact, for... Oh, go ahead, Sharon. Oh, I, in fact, I was going to say it, it actually has almost like an orange peel kind of a texture. It, like, changes the texture of the skin. Isn't that right? That's correct. And that's because the breast swells up. So the ligaments that hold things together within the breast tissue pulls on the skin and gives it that puckering appearance. And the French word for it is peau d'orange, which is the skin of the orange. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. They actually call it that. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. And Paget's disease. Now, what's that exactly? I don't, we don't hear that of that very often. Paget's disease is when the nipple is involved. So you oh. look at the nipple and it's uh, dried up, crusty, sometimes ulcerated, oozing. And that's the cancer in the ducts going into the nipple, duct uh-huh. opening and affecting the skin of the nipple. And that's what, what we see when we look at it. Right. So a person can have ductal time. carcinoma and then have it impact the nipple and then it turns into Paget's disease? Is that right, or is it? Paget is the name for it when it's involving the nipple. Okay. 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 That's good. Mind you, you, lots of time, eczema, uh, you know, just pure eczema can show up on the nipple as ulcerated, excoriated nipple, you know, oozing. And that's just eczema. Okay. So if you see. Right, that makes sense. If Boy, it's a tricky it, thing, isn't it? Them, <laughs> it's hard to sorry? tell what some what it is sometimes. That's yeah, why you well, need to go I, for a clinical also, exam. Exactly, you know? and that's so why it is misdiagnosed many times because people think it's something else, and, and yeah. then that's a problem, obviously. So there's also different types of... Um, we have, a, we have ductal cancer and we have lobular cancer. So that's either in the lobe or in the milk ducts, right? Those are two separate kinds of cancers. And then we also have the types that are hormone-driven. And the way I explain it to um, uh, some of my patients, too, is what's feeding the cancer. So maybe you could explain that a little bit better, too, the, like the HER2-positive versus the ER-positive, those kinds of things. 
So the breast tissue <clears throat> has the duct and the lobules. The lobules are the tissues that are making the milk. The ducts carry the milk. Oh, breast cancer is either. more common in the ducts. The second most common is in the lobules. Okay. Now, when we treat the breast cancer, we look at what's feeding it. And that's why we talk about genomics, right? And tailoring the treatment to each person, to each woman. It's not just a cookbook that we give everybody the same thing like we used to do in the past. Right. And so we can actually study a piece of that cancer to see what's driving it, what's making it grow. And so if it's hormone receptor positive, then we give them a hormone blocker, such as tamoxifen, femara, avimidex, all these medications. Mm-hmm. If it's the type that's driven by the HER2 new, HER2 positive cancer, then we give them a type of chemo that blocks that receptor, such as Herceptin. Rastuzumab right. is the other name for it. And so we look at what's driving that cancer and we block it. We block it. So what about triple negative? Where does that fit into all this? So triple negative is estrogen receptor negative, progesterone receptor negative, and her negative. So it's the type that doesn't get driven by, her, by the HER2 and doesn't get driven by the hormones. So that type needs chemotherapy for sure because that's the only thing that's going to block it. Right, right. I, I always say, you know, it's like they throw the kitchen sink at you then because they don't know exactly what's feeding it. So they just have to <laughs> hope they can find the, the right type of uh, combination to, to, you know, make that work because that's a pretty scary situation when they don't know. So let's switch gears here and talk a little bit more about treatment. So when, when we... Uh, there's lots of different factors that go into determining that specific type of treatment. And I know the one thing that stands out to a lot of people is some people end up having surgery first, and then they do go into the uh, chemotherapy and radiation, and others start with the chemotherapy. Can you tell me the difference in that situation? So just as follow-up follow of what we had been talking about, if the tumor is very small and it's the good type, so it's the slow-growing grade 1, we think it's going to be stage 1, the lymph nodes don't look enlarged or anything like that, and it is strongly estrogen receptor positive, progesterone receptor positive, then that woman may not need any chemotherapy, and all she would need is a pill to block the hormones, of course, in addition to surgery to take it out and radiation after a lumpectomy. Although there are studies now saying if the woman is above age 70 and it is that good type, so to speak, and she's going to take the pill hormone blocker, she can have the lumpectomy and skip radiation altogether. You know, mm. the survival is the same. Wow. And so if we think the woman is going to need chemotherapy because it's the her to new positive, so she's committed to that herceptin, or because it's the triple negative, so she needs that chemotherapy. And if the tumor is large, then for sure give her the chemo first to control it, shrink it, and then do the surgery and get the clear margins that sometimes we struggle with. Mm -hmm. If we test for gene genetics and 
we think she's gonna have the gene because she's young, she has a strong family history, and she has the triple negative, then for sure give her the chemo first to control it, and then do a clean surgery where you take out both breast and reconstruction with the plastic surgery and all that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That makes sense, yeah. And so, and in, and in many cases, the fight against cancer um, doesn't end up with surgery. So I know what I find it really fascinating that when a woman unfortunately is diagnosed with stage four cancer, many times they don't do anything with the actual cancer in the breast. Then they're treating the entire body uh, to to try to fight it. Right. So when it's stage four, it's not just in the breast. So we cannot do surgery and take out the breast and help them. Because if I do surgery and take out that breast and she has cancer in her lungs growing, now her body is busy trying to heal from the breast surgery. And guess what? Right. That cancer in the lung is growing and growing. So that oh, means what a great part. way to look at that. I'd never, you know, I've never really put it together that way. That's, yeah. that's, I just figured that there were more important areas to treat at that point in time and but that's a really good so, good point. We talk about the treatment as local versus systemic. Local right. means surgery and radiation. Systemic means chemotherapy and hormone blocker pills. Right. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. once it's somewhere else in the body, it's already systemic, and you need to use that systemic treatment. If it's mm-hmm. just in the breast, then you may go ahead and take care of it locally with surgery and radiation. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? It yeah. does. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. So in the yeah. old times, we used to give the, if it's a stage four, we used to give chemo and all that and then say, okay, we better do a toilet mastectomy, we called it. Toilet means we're cleaning up. We're taking out that source in the breast started it all out and the breast is probably ulcerated or the tumor is too big or whatever. Mm. Now, there are clinical trials trying to show if actually taking out that source helps the survival or not. So are we helping women live longer if we take out that source? Mm -hmm. We don't know the answer. There are clinical trials studying that. But what's important to keep in mind is you cannot do surgery if there's active cancer somewhere else in the body. Otherwise, you're hurting that patient. You know, that makes so much sense. Honestly, I just never thought of that before. So So thank you for sharing that. once the cancer elsewhere in the body is under control, then yes, we may go ahead and take out that source and watch the rest of the body. And of course, when you give them... When, when you give them the chemo for the other parts of the body, it's going to impact what's going on in the breast too. So of course. it's kind of a win, kind of a win-win. And so maybe by the time you get the rest under control, the the tumor in the breast is smaller as well. So I can see some really good benefits from that. I just just never thought of that before. Sharon, we learn something new every day, right? I know, I know. <laughs> even even in breast cancer basics, I love it. <laughs> yeah, yep. it's wonderful. So so the thing is that's so confusing to me though is I remember these two women that I worked with. They had the same doctor. They had basically the same uh, diagnosis, the same kind of cancer. And they had exactly the same treatment. And one of them responded amazingly well to the treatment and is 
living a wonderful life. And the other one literally did not touch the cancer. And in nine months, she passed away. And that was devastating to me, as well as I'm sure the doctor and the patients involved in this. And so what could be the difference in that? Well, you cannot say that they had the same cancer because we don't know. We have to look at their pathologies, their grades, all that. Right, right. So people are They're just on the surface. They, they have their own genetics, their own comorbidities. If they have diabetes, if they smoke, if they drink alcohol, all that stuff takes into account how the body responds. Mm-hmm. That's true. Mm-hmm. So we That's cannot yeah. say we had exactly the same thing unless they were twins, identical <laughs> twins yeah. who had the same cancer. Okay, yeah. that, and that makes sense. But yeah. on the surface, you know, it, it seemed they had the same grade and type of cancer and all that. But again, it's it really goes right back to the DNA and, and how your body responds to those substances, I would imagine. So that makes sense. Right. right. So, you know, there's another side to that coin, too. And it's kind of it's kind of the opposite of this. You can have two people with a similar type cancer and two different doctors, and they will come up with a completely different um treatment plan and you know we hear that also quite often when people call our office they'll say well my friend had had surgery first and my doctor is doing chemo and right. I don't understand why he's doing that what why isn't he doing the same thing she did because you know she's she did well and right. and so you know we give them our answer but let's hear your answer because yours is going to come from you, a you medical really perspective cannot you cannot answer because you don't know they should yeah. be asking their doctor that question yeah, that that's our answer. <laughs> <You> yeah, <know? laughs> you'll need to chat with your doctor about that yeah, one. Yeah, <laughs> because there's a lot of differences, and you know it may seem the same, but there's a lot of differences. And your doctor is doing what he believes is the best path for your particular situation. So that is exactly. the answer that we give. So exactly. um, and yeah, good because that's the same thing we say, and that sounds like what you would say too. So that's yeah. cool. Well, listen, let's get on to a different subject real quick. And let's talk, you touched on it for a moment, and that was genetic breast cancer. And, you know, I've had breast cancer three times. It runs rampant on my dad's side of the family, his mom, his sister, his, uh, and my cousin, his, you know, his niece. Uh, they all had breast cancer. Um, his sister had it twice. I've had it three times. You would think there would be a pretty big genetic factor there. But I got tested for BRCA1 and 2, and it came out negative. So... You know, it, it's so is kind that of an, all you got tested for, the BRCA1 and 2? Yes, and because at that time, that's all they had. And now we know that there's exactly. a bunch more. So that's what I was going to ask you is can you speak to what has happened recently? So this is all technology limited. We have certain tools we use. And the more we advance, the better tools we have, then we can find out things more. So genetic testing has evolved tremendously over the last 20 years. BRCA1 and BRCA2 are called BRCA1 and BRCA2 because that's how they were discovered. BRCA1 was discovered first in the 90s, BRCA2 in 1995. And Myriad was the company that held the patent for them. And so that was our capability to test is with the tools we had at the time for BRCA1, BRCA2, using sequencing techniques, we call them. 
And then the okay. technology changed, and we realized that there is other technologies we can use to do the testing on the BRCA1, BRCA2, and we realized we were actually missing mutations in the BRCA1, BRCA2 with the sequencing technique only. And so we started doing larger, we call it uh, BART, uh, large chunks of DNA testing. And then the next generation sequencing testing technology came around where we started testing for panels of genes. So now we had the capability to test not just for the BRCA1, BRCA2, but for a bunch of DNA at the same time without taking day, you know, days and years to get the results. So now we talk about gene panel testing. And so the more we tested, the more we collected data, the more we realized that BRCA1, BRCA2 are not the only ones accounting for breast cancer. There's the, all these other genes associated with other syndromes that mm-hmm. are also accounting for the breast cancer. Mm-hmm. So, so now we do gene had, panel tests. So if a person had the BRCA1 and 2 testing, basically what I'm hearing is that it might be worth going back in and having the, the newer panels done too to just to make sure. You have to. If you were diagnosed at a young age and you have a strong mm-hmm. family history, then we're missing something on you. And for yeah. you to go around thinking that you don't have a gene because you just got tested for BRCA1 and BRCA2 is wrong. Yeah. You need to complete I, I the testing. Okay, well, you know what? I've got another question I'm going to ask on the other side of the break, and I wrote it down this time so I don't, I don't have a chemo brain moment and lose it. So we are going to take a short break. So... Please stay with us um, through the break and come back on the other side, and we'll pick this up where, we, where we're leaving off right now. Step into a healthier you. Voice America Health & Wellness. Thank you for listening today. Breast Friends needs your support. We rely on donations to keep our doors open and to keep this radio program alive. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation to Breast Friends. You can visit us at breastfriends.org. You can also like us on Facebook at Breast Friends of Oregon. Be sure to tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time for Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. Visit breastfriends.org and contribute today. When was the last time you felt free? It's time to uncover that feeling again with the compassion of a cross and shield and the power of a card that opens doors to the best hospitals and medical centers in all 50 states, giving you the freedom to love, to dream, to dance like no one is watching. Regions Blue Cross Blue Shield. Live fearless. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness.
You are tuned into Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. To reach the program today, please call us at 1 866 472 5792. Again, that's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Becky at breastfriends.org. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. We've been talking about breast cancer basics with Dr. Suzanne Elid. And Becky, I think you had a, a question you wanted to ask about genetics on the I, on the- I do. And okay. you know, it's it's kind of it's kind of a difficult thing. You know, you would think it would be super easy to make that decision. You know, I've had breast cancer three times. You know, I've got kids, I've got daughters. So, of course, you want to have the testing, right? The problem is, is I already knew I was a, I had cancer, and I didn't know what I would do with the information if I found out I tested positive because mm-hmm. I didn't know if my daughters wanted to know. So, you know, because once they know, now they've got to, they're faced with a decision. Do they want to have a, a prophylactic mastectomy just to avoid any future problems? So it wasn't just me that needed to know. It's what do I do with the information? Yeah. So one thing, one thing that kind of that I did, one of the things I did is I asked my daughters, I said, you know, I've got this opportunity to be tested to see if I carry the gene mutation. If I carry the gene mutation, you have a 50% chance of also having that gene mutation. Is this something you would want to know? And until they both said to me, yes, I would want to know, that's when I made the decision to do the testing because I already had it. So I already knew I was at risk. Yeah, yeah and you I was were teaching, affecting everybody else. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I, and I had already t- you know, trained my daughters, taught them that they're at risk just because I am. But do they want to know the outcome of that? And so once they both finally said yes, then I had the testing done. And, you know, it, it, so it's not a super easy decision. And I know that there are genetic counselors that can kind of guide you through that process. And then the other question my doctor asked me is, what would you do different if you knew that you had the the gene mutation? And so then I thought, well, maybe I would have my ovaries removed because that puts them at risk too. So there was an impact for me, but I was more concerned about the impact on my daughters and even my sons because men can get breast cancer too. So, um, so do you have any advice for the people listening who might be kind of thinking that same thing, Dr. Alid? So I, I've been doing this since the late 1990s. And yes, I've been exposed to the concerns of the patients and the emotional issues that go with it. So you both are survivors, but we also talk about pre-vivors. And the pre-vivors are the patients who are carriers who get tested because somebody else in their family got identified with the gene mutation and they got tested and they have it. So now we watch them closer, we screen them closer with more than one tool. We offer them prophylactic medications, prophylactic surgery, so that they don't get the cancer and so we call them previvors. In 2005, um, President Bush at the time uh, um, issued the GINA law, Genetic Information uh, Non-Discrimination Act. Because one of the things patients worried about is, what is my insurance going to deny me because now I have this gene? And so that's no more, right? There's protection at the federal level for jobs. You know, I do remember that. I do remember people talking about that. Would my insurance deny me? So thank you for bringing that up. But yeah, now they can't. So that's, that's good. That's no longer so an issue. So knowledge is 
forward, right? So you yes. want to know. You want to know not just for yourself so that you know what gene you have and which other syndromes are associated with it, which other cancers are associated with it. So we've been talking about the BRCA1 and BRCA2, which are still the most common. We used to say they account for about 80% of the genetics associated with breast cancer, but now it dropped to about 50%. 50% is with other genes. And so if we're talking about the BRCA1 and BRCA2, um, it's not just breast, it's also ovarian, it's also melanoma, and it's also pancreas cancer, and it's also prostate cancer in men. Mm-hmm. And so we screen those patients at earlier ages to make sure they're not developing one of these cancers. That and if it's sense. a young woman who has the gene, then it's more important for her to finish having the, her children and get out the ovaries before getting out the breast because the ovarian cancer is a killer and we miss it. Mm-hmm. So there's all these things that go into account. So when the woman decides to get tested, it's not just for herself. It's also for her family. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So but who, it, would you, who, do you, who do you suggest getting this, the, the genetic testing? You know, what, what is your that, criteria? So NCCN guidelines, right? Everybody and the, and the listeners should Google that. Um, NCCN guidelines has a list of criteria for who should get tested, and usually it's the person who has had the cancer themselves, and they had it at a young age. So when we see cancer at a young age, we think genetics. And then we ask them, who else in your family had the cancer? And they start listing off a bunch of people. Then the flag and the suspicion keeps going up higher and higher, and we're like, well, we have to test you for the gene. And that's how it goes. So once we identify the gene... So when we test, we test for a bunch of genes. Once we identify the one gene culpable, you know, for causing the cancer, then we test the rest of the family for that one gene only. 50-50 chance, boys and girls, 50-50 chance. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Okay. Can we talk about male breast cancer real quick? Because I know we we touched on it during the break when we were kind of offline, but... What percentage of, of breast cancers happens to men? So 1% of all breast cancer occurs in men. It's okay. not usual to have breast cancer in men because they don't make milk, right? Okay. Right. So, so they, and they have testosterone, not estrogen. And so it's not common to have breast cancer in men. But once they have the breast cancer and it's a male, then we automatically have to test that person for the gene to see what else in their body made them have that cancer. So statistics, 1% of all breast cancers occurs in men. And once we see a man with breast cancer, we have to test them for the gene. And what percentage of those men who have breast cancer have a gene mutation? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Okay, might might be pretty high. That might be worth googling. Mm-hmm. So, I'll have to check yeah. that one out. Yeah, I don't know either, but but it it seems as if most of the men that I have talked to in the last 20 years, um I think they they did have a a, a mutation of some sort, but again, that that's an interesting topic all by itself. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it would be. 
It so tell us, sure. tell us a little bit more about these gene mutations that have been discovered beyond the BRCA. Is there, is there something we should be specifically asking our doctors about? Or So when a woman has ovarian cancer, the first thing we think of is the, is the BRCA gene. But ovarian cancer is part of the Lynch syndrome, we call it, which is the colon cancer associated with ovarian and uterine endometrial cancer. So if the woman had ovarian cancer and they tested her for the BRCA and she's negative, she has to get tested for the Lynch syndrome to make sure she doesn't have the Lynch syndrome. If I'm sorry, but what are you, what's it called? This, what's the syndrome called? Lynch, L-Y-N-C-H. Okay, thank you. And it's, under, it's after the name of Dr. Lynch from Omaha, Nebraska. I went to medical school in Omaha, Nebraska. That's how... <laughs> I knew Dr. Lynch. I know him. And oh, so um, it's after his name. And so that syndrome accounts for um, the most common is the colon, uterine, endometrial cancer, the lining of the uterus, and ovarian. It is also associated with other uh, cancers in the abdomen, like stomach and stuff. But these are the most common. So if she okay. has the Lynch syndrome, she has to be getting colonoscopy. Make sure if she's developing colon cancer, catch it early. Okay. And so, and so the the Lynch syndrome is something similar to BRCA. It's it's another gene mutation. Is that that causes Lynch correct. syndrome? Okay. Correct. And is that all done through a blood test? I know BRCA one and two were done through blood tests. Are these all done that way? It can be blood test. It can be saliva. Saliva. Oh, okay. I have bad veins. I like saliva better. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds much easier. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And so that's one example. Other examples, um, I mean, there's a bunch of them. The other, besides the NCCI guidelines that we talked about, uh, the government.gov, cancer.gov. If people go on cancer.gov, the government list, all these genes and the mutations and the cancers associated with them. And actually, part of the, um, Vice President Biden, cancer moonshot that got initiated this year and launched this year in 2016, is looking into cancer genetics and cancer genomics. What causes the cancer and how the cancers behave. So the government has been spending a lot of time, money, and energy into all this helping population. Mm, that's wow, wonderful. That's great. That's wonderful. That's great. So one yeah. other quick question before we, we have to uh, get close to our wind-up here is, are there any other follow-up questions that if you've had cancer, if you've had breast cancer, that you should be talking to your doctor about? So if you've had breast cancer, you're high risk by definition. Right? You made it once, you can make it again. Example mm-hmm. is our host who had it three times. Right. <laughs> so, so you cannot just say, oh, yeah, I'm a survivor and I'm going to forget about it and live my life. my life. Yes, we want you to live your life, but we don't want you to be careless. So go get checked every six months. We run high-risk clinic where we see the patients who are high-risk, whether by family history, by genetics, or personal history of cancer or personal histories of biopsies that are precancerous, like atypia and lobular carcinoma in situ and all that stuff. And so they are high risk. We follow them every six months. And if they qualify, we add the MRI to the mammogram. 
You know, we, I kind of we were kind of joking just a second ago about that, but I have to say, when I had my second diagnosis, I wasn't as scared as I was the first time because, like you said, I've been there, done that, mm-hmm. and I I knew I would be okay, and I I knew I'd fight it again, but somehow I knew I'd be okay. But the third time, because at that point I had no breasts. So at the third time, I was pretty scared because it's like, why did it come back? And when they called it consistent mm. with metastatic disease, that that kind of threw me. And I, I, I really, I was pretty upset about that for a while. And for a short time, I couldn't even talk to patients because I, I didn't, I didn't want it to be about me all of a sudden. You know what I'm exactly. saying? So, yeah, exactly. I kind of had to back away from that role. Um, you know what? I, I hate to do this, but we are running out of time. So, before we do run out of time, Doctor Alid, would you tell our listeners very quickly? Um, I know you work in Las Vegas, but I also know that you do some speaking on the genetic. Would you just talk about that very quickly? Yes. Yeah, so, my office is in Las Vegas. I am part of Comprehensive Cancer Centers. I run a breast center at the Summerlin Hospital Center. I am the medical director for that breast center. Um, I'm actually also the president of the Clark County Medical Society for this year. Um, okay. I do participate in research clinical trials. I'm speaker for a few companies, but a couple of them are for genetic testing, Myriad and Ambry. Okay. Um, I run a hereditary conference, actually, monthly for the physicians in the area where we present cases. We present the family history and then the test results, the patients who have the genes or have variants in the genes that we're still learning about and all that. Um, so if people wanted to reach you, if they want to reach you to talk to you about any of this, how, what's the best way to get a hold of you? You've got about 20 seconds. The office phone number is 702-255-1133. The office address is 9280 West Sunset, Suite 100, Las Vegas, Nevada. Eight nine one four eight. Excellent. And if you if anybody missed that, you can download this off of our archives and play it back, so you can catch it. We are out of time. So, Doctor Elite, thank you so so much for taking your time to be with us today. Um, it's been really a good good session for all of us. And we wanted to let people know if you love this program and you love what we're doing, we are a nonprofit, Breast Friends. Um, completely nonprofit. So if you like this program and you'd like to support what we do so we can keep this program on the air, please look up breastfriends.org. There's a big blue donate button. Click that button and make a donation as big as you can because we'd love to keep this program going for you. So um, with that, we are out of time completely. We will be back next week. Until then, remember, there is always hope and we're here to help you find it. Merry Christmas, everyone. Thank you for listening to Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. Please join Sharon Hannafin and Becky Olson again next Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. There is always hope, and we'll help you find it. We'll talk again next time.